I was born and I was raised as a tender-footed suburbanite. I am not proud of it, but it is who I am. I am used to manicured lawns, clean roads with cul-de-sacs, white picket fences, and small lots with landscape flower beds and small, nice, ornamental trees. I grew up playing sports, and everyone I knew expected to go to college so they could get a white-collar job. We were high class where I grew up. I never met a person who actually hunted for fun, and very few People I, I knew owned a John Deere tractor, and I'm not talking about a riding lawnmower. I'm talking about a medium-sized utility tractor front-end loader. I didn't meet many of those people. I have learned that a suburban life does not prepare a boy well for figuring out, figuring out home repairs later in life. So when a dark storm comes rolling in and the power goes out, I, by nature, am completely dependent on the power company to fix my power lines and get my juice flowing back to my house. And they better do it quick so my food doesn't spoil or my wife doesn't have to go a few days without a warm shower. God forbid! So imagine when I moved to Kent City and found that most people have driven a tractor and shot a deer for fun. Lee Decker. I can remember the first time the power went out in the subdivision I live in now. Some people are like me, helpless when the power's out. But I also started hearing machines being cranked up, and I heard a loud purring. Wayne. I went out to the street and saw how some lights were on the houses, especially those houses that were purring. I saw some of those neighbors cleaning up debris and asked them how they got power. I've got me a generator. They were able to hook up the refrigerators. They were able to turn lights on in the kitchen. Some could watch baseball on TV, and their wives were able to take hot showers. I asked, how can I get hooked up to power too? Some told me it was rather easy to connect a cord to a transfer switch and the power and explain to me that it was even relatively inexpensive. But then you have those guys who like to rub in their knowledge on my suburbanite ignorance. They make it sound like only a wizard electrician of the highest order can actually get her done. So I just quit asking and once again wait out for consumers' energy to come to the rescue. Hooking up a generator sounds complicated, sounds almost impossible, and I'm an ignoramus when it comes to home repair, so why try? So I quit. I quit. I can't do it. I'll tell you what, that's how I felt about religion and religious people for many, many years of my life. There seemed to be a select group of holy people who had special connection with God. And you have to say it like that, with God. They made it seem so complicated and so cryptic, reaching the divine. The few choice servants of God were either theologically sophisticated, they just knew things, or they were given a special title, an office, they had special giftings to touch God. I simply was just a man in a pew, a regular guy. So when it came to connecting with God, why even try? Why even try? If that is how you feel, then you've come to the right place. 
because we are going to study in 2 Peter from a man who was a regular guy. He was a fisherman. That was his main job. We find him, Peter, in 2 Peter, older and wiser than we found him in the Gospels. And he is writing to Christians who are facing sophisticated believers. They're going to be called false prophets, but they're the ones that believe they had special touch with God. These teachers were in it for their own gain. They were in it to control other people in the church, not for the glory of Jesus Christ, nor not for the regular pew sitter like me. But Peter is. And so we're going to find in these first four verses, some to me, some tremendously, really to me, these are some of my favorite passages of Scripture because they are, there's four verses, but they are power. They hook you up to his power. Look at what it says starting in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you, you, may become partakers of the divine nature. Hmm. Having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Simon Peter wrote this book. It begins, he's using both of his names. He's the fisherman. He's the friend of Jesus. He is the one who denied the Lord three times and was reinstated by the three I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Today we're going to learn about him as the how-to spiritual electrician who's going to hook us up to the generator. He begins his letter by identifying himself with two names, Simon, which is his Hebrew name. Actually, if you read in the Greek, it has a Hebrew spelling. Simon, his Jewish Hebrew name, and Peter. Peter's the name that Jesus gave him. You could say that's his Christian name. I like what Michael Green writes about this title. This double name is meant to draw our attention to Peter's transformation from the old life to the new. The drastic change that Jesus brought to Peter's life can also be true in your life. The man you were before and after you met Christ. The woman you were before and after Jesus took a hold of you. I was, before I knew Jesus, Chris Weeks trying to get successful in Chicago. Now, after I've been rescued, I'm a small town pastor who's been redeemed from hell. Psalm 104 is still one of my favorite passages. He, Christ, redeemed my life from the pit. So I was in the pit. And he has now crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercy. He has transformed me. And this passage tells us how that's accomplished. Look how the great St. Peter even presents himself. Because if anyone should be considered a spiritual elite, it has to be Peter. I mean, St. Peter's Basilica... In Rome, the ostentation, elaborate edifice of high towers 
in ornamental paintings, rich paintings. Millions of dollars of paintings are in there. That place is named after him, St. Peter. So how should we address St. Peter? Should we kiss his finger? Should we bow and kiss his ring? How would he like to be addressed? Let's ask him. Peter, how would you like to be addressed? Well, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. The Greek means I'm a bond slave to Jesus. The doulos. In other words, he's nothing special. No high title. Nothing to dress up with gold letters or chiseled in stone. Call me a servant of Jesus. He's also an apostle. That means he's sent by Jesus. He is on special assignment. He's given the authority to both represent and speak for the Lord. He, an apostle does not mean the way it means in American culture. In American culture, if you go to a church and if somebody calls themselves an apostle, what they kind of mean by that is I have the right to take money from you, get a fancy Mercedes Benz, and have three houses on the Florida coast. No, for Peter it meant I'm here for Jesus, not for me, not for my glory. But the last thing he says about himself is stunning. I want you to listen to this. For me, I wish I would have heard this early in my Christianity. Listen to what he says in the second part of verse 1. He says, I'm Simon Peter, I'm a servant, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus sent me. And then he says, to those, he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Who are ours? You could say, well, it's the Jews, or you could also say it's the apostles. But he's saying, I'm of equal standing with you. So he's a servant, he's an apostle, but he's an equal. He's an equal. He's an equal with me, St. Peter? The man who has buildings dedicated after him, the one who was on the Mount Transfiguration and got to see Jesus in his glory, he's an equal of me? Peter has paintings drawn of him, popes named after him, children who aspire to be like him. He is saying he is on equal footing with me and you? Yeah, he's an equal not a spiritual elite. Peter is not calling for a select class of Christians. No one is better than any other in the family of God. No higher titles. We are equal. I can remember talking with a person. I was at a restaurant. And uh, I don't know how we got on this conversation, but he was upset because I said there is no special class of Christians in the heavens. When God calls a person a saint, it's not for some special elite group. It's for all of us who believe it. And oh, he got mad. He said, we need a special group. We need people to aspire to. And I looked at him and I said, isn't Jesus enough? Verse 1 says, we are of equal standing by, because of, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's because of his righteousness we've obtained faith. Or you could say it, it's not by our hard work to please God. It's not because of our special abilities or titles. It's by his life and death alone that gives me a firm foundation to stand on. The foundation is not built by the elites, not built by people wearing expensive robes, kissing gold crucifixes. It's not for nuns only or missionaries in Africa. It's not for monks who remain silent for 30 years. Equal footing is for all of us. How do I know the foundation is firm? Look how he describes Jesus at the end of the verse. He's God and he's Savior. 
Jesus is able to save me completely. So if you have received Christ by faith, take courage. You stand on equal footing with Peter. Because Peter can only get to God through Jesus too. Equal footing and equal access. Well, what he's going to now go on, he's going to talk about grace and peace being multiplied. So you could say it like that. Even though we are all equal, even though we're all equal, it is pretty obvious that some people in the church seem to just have more of him, more power. Just like the house on the road that has the generator while the other will remain dark, some people just shine bright. I mean, you know it. There's just some people in the church that shine bright while others struggle in the dark. Some seem to be powered up while many in the church seem to be disconnected. Peter in verse 3 says there's a power available. His divine power is available. Verse 2 says it can be multiplied. Grace, which is what his power is, can be multiplied, expanded. It can be increased. And when we're hooked up to it, three things will be affected. Or you can say it like this. If you want more, this is the more that you can have. He gives us three things that can be multiplied or expanded. He says life and godliness in verse 3. He is saying we can have more life. Life here is in reference to God's life, Zoe. Bio is just regular, your heart pumping. Zoe life is God's spiritual vitality. One commentator says, this is the very life of God that gives strength and power to the spirit and soul of a person. It gives animation and energy to a person to live a vibrant life for God. I once heard it like this. Do you know what the glory of God is? A man or a woman fully alive. That's what this is talking about. You can have more of that. A person with Zoe has a sparkle in their eyes. Their arms aren't hanging Everywhere they go, and their mind isn't saying, woe is me. Woe is me. There are some people who slink through life like misty shadows merely existing. Oh, another day. People with life seem solid. They, they enter a room and it changes. They make a difference. You can have more of that. You can have more love. Look at what he says, life and godliness. Godliness is a hard attitude of love. It wants to love God more and love other people more. We often think of godliness as, it's kind of like this, oh, look at that godly person as they're distanced from everybody else. Like the monk up in the high tower. Oh, he's godly. No, a godly person is exuding love for people. You can feel it. Because they have a love for God, a connectedness. They're motivated and driven by love and the more strength. Look at verse 4. Talks about he gives us this divine, uh, through his divine nature participation, we can escape from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. It gives you more strength to resist the lure of temptation in the world. Self-control becomes a part of your life. You don't give in. You don't give in. You're strong to resist. It means, it means I don't have to be failing at temptation. I don't have to be. 
There's a, there's a theological teaching. I'm always fascinated with it, especially when we talk about ordinations. And it talks about Christ's impeccability. The impeccability of Jesus means that not only did Jesus not sin, but because he was also God, he could not sin. He didn't sin, but he could not sin. That is why when he went to tax collectors' parties with Matthew, he didn't, he didn't get drunk. He didn't have to be the clown fool who had to tell the biggest story, get a slap on the back from everybody, because re- he doesn't need it. Or when prostitutes came over to him, he wasn't scared he would fall. He wasn't attracted to the lure of sexual sin. Why? Because he knew that would come, it comes to steal, uh, steal, kill, and destroy you. He doesn't give in to it because he's impeccable. To me, the idea that when you are hooked up to God's power, you don't, you see it differently. I know pastors that if they have pretty women in their church, they won't even look at them for fear of fear. Wait, your sister in Christ. It's weird. When you have God's power coursing through you, attraction to sin lessens, and you will start making the right choices because it's right. You're hooked up to power. To me, I'd love this kind of power, more of this, more life, more love, more strength. Some churches call this victorious living. Resurrection life. I call it, finally, we can live the way we've been designed to live. It shouldn't be special. Like we say, wow, when people live with more life, more love, more strength, man, they're special. That shouldn't be special. That should be life as normal for a Christian. We're hooked up to Christ. But it's become this special elite group of people. Why? God... Send his son to die so his spirit could live, a, live in you and you could be different. But it is rare, I have to be honest with you, it is rare talking to Doug and our friends' prayer partners. It's a lot of people he works with that in his business that call themselves Christians, but they shop talk, he said. They shop talk, which means they can be creeps. Why? Aren't you hooked up to God? Well, maybe it's because people just don't know how to hook up. Kind of like I didn't know how to hook up to a generator. Maybe we just don't know how to hook up to the divine nature. Well, let's see what it says. It gives us three ways to hook up. First of all, it says power comes from God. His divine power. His. God owns it because God himself is power. God himself is life. God himself is love. God himself is strength. So when I'm hooked into God, I get life, love, and strength. And then... This is what Peter's talking about in verse 4. He says that you, in the middle of it, says you may become partakers of the divine nature. You see that phrase, partakers of the divine nature? It's one of the most, to me, one of the most fascinating things to consider. What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? It's been uh, twisted a lot by a lot of different groups. A lot of groups take it to strange, mystical realms. Like the Eastern Orthodox believers have wrongly taken the statement to mean that we can become godlike right now in our nature. As Jesus took on flesh, we can take on deity. There's only one meteor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't take on deity. But the Eastern Orthodox called theification or theosis. They say our actual nature or our essence can change. That's what they think this verse means. 
Then you have some extreme Pentecostals that believe this phrase. They twist it and they say, I can be just like Jesus if I harness correctly in the same kind of ability and strength where they even believe our words like Jesus can create reality out of nothing. Jesus spoke ex nihilo to make the world out of nothing. And when I take on his nature, I too should be able to speak things out of nothing. So some Pentecostals say when you go fishing, speak fish under your hook and it will appear. They teach that. That's why they teach you can have money come into your bank account by naming it and claiming it. They believe we can speak reality by because we participate with the divine nature. That is not what this means. Biblically, what does it mean to participate with the divine nature? It means to share in the moral nature of God. It's to share in the moral nature of God. Ephesians says, we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. Now we are made alive in our spirit, which means our desires are changed, our attitudes are changed, and our knowledge is enlightened. We participate with God's moral nature. We don't become superheroes. We become children whose hearts are attuned to the voice of their father. Yes, Dad, I want to do your will. So how do I hook up to his power? Three ways Peter's going to give us in here. I want to make this as practical as possible. I think sometimes if I don't tell you how it happens in my life, it just becomes words. I don't want to, I don't want to be the electrician that makes hooking up to a generator sound like building a space shuttle. And there's some electricians that are good at, at doing that. See, because I believe we're all have, we all have the means to connect to God's power. Every one of you does. All of us. And it's grounded in the Trinitarian nature of God. Why wouldn't it be? First thing, how do we hook up to his power? We hook up to his power by having a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 and 3. Verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That means may God's life his grace, His peace be multiple, given to you where, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In the knowledge of Jesus. Then you have verse 3. His divine power has granted us things that pertain to life and godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory. The idea is that as we behold His glory and His excellence, we gain knowledge which gets us connected to God. If you want to know God and what he's like, you need to learn and know Jesus. That's what really verse 1 is, says, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter loved Jesus. His, he points to Jesus throughout both of his epistles like nobody else. In Jesus, we see God acting, we see God behaving, we see God talking, we see God walking. Jesus, as Hebrews says, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. We learn about God through Jesus. He is God spoken in human language, a language we understand clearly. John 17, 3 says that's exactly what eternal life is, to know him, the only true God in Jesus. That's what we're going to be spending eternity doing, continuing getting to know God through Christ. John 1.14 says the word, which is the spoken truth of God, took on flesh 
became a human and he dwelled among us. He lived with us so we could get to know him and then imitate him. Power is through imitation. Walking as Jesus walked. Many scholars have gone so far as to say, listen to this, this is, I, I agree with this completely, but you rarely hear it. And if this is true, it will change all of this religious discourse. Everything we can know about God, who He is, how He thinks, is through Jesus. God refuses to be known any other way. It is impossible to know God any other way than through His Son. Before I got these glasses at Moody Foundry, and I, they, had a, they had like a slide, but it was pretty far away, and they were singing songs, and I'm standing next to my son, Gio, and Michelle, and they're singing these songs. I'm like, how do you, how, I can't even read that. How do you even see that? And they're singing. I couldn't even make out the words. It was kind of far away. Then I get these glasses, and now I, I can see. Before, everything was fuzzy, vague, squiggly, blurry lines. When I put these glasses on, it's clear as crystal. Before Jesus came, God to the world was blurry, vague. He still is vague and blurry without Christ. But when you have Christ, oh, I see now. I get it. I know what God's like. He's knowable through Christ. So practically, I'd, I'd ask this question. What is it, what is it that attracts people to Jesus? And even taking a second portion of this, and why does that matter to know him? I think because as you know him, you begin to understand. Well, let me explain it like this. First question, what is it that attracts a person to Jesus? I'll tell you personally, the stories in the gospel, if they're true, they're most unbelievable stories. My favorite story in the gospel, and I go to this often through very difficult times, is when they are in the boat going across the Sea of Galilee and Peter is there. Peter lived his life on the Sea of Galilee, his whole life. He's been on that sea a hundred times, million times. And a storm comes over, Jesus is sleeping, and Peter says, we're going to die. In his mind, all options, I know, this, I know this, this sea, I've been on it a million times, and in my mind, there's no options left, I'm dead. Well, Jesus was sleeping in the back, so he wakes him up, Jesus, get up, get up. Jesus gets up and says, what? He goes, we're going to die. He's basically saying, all options are closed, I don't see any way out of this trouble, Will you help me? We're going to die. Jesus stands up and he just tells the storm to just be quiet. The waves go quiet. The disciples look at each other and they say, what? It says they're scared. And they said, what manner of man is this? This, here's why this matters. This same Jesus is still alive today. Man, when my troubles, I don't see any way around them. I've been on this earth a, a long time, and I'm out of answers. I'm done. I feel like Peter. I'm just going to die. There's a person really alive, actively living, seeing my situation, who is there. I can go to him just like Peter. And he can tell my situation to be quiet. But I, do you believe that? When you believe that, it changes your life. There's power there. Because when there's situations I can't handle, 
and I'm, I feel dead in the water, I go to him because he's alive. I think our problem in the church is we, we read these stories in the New Testament. You know, when he, he, he takes a man who's out of his mind and it says Jesus sees him and he's in his complete right mind. We don't really believe that can happen anymore. But once you get to know him, I, I, one of the funniest statements I ever heard in one of my seminary profs, he's a really cynical guy, he's this bald guy, he'd walk into class like this, and he'd say, you know, I'm an atheist most of the time, and when I'm an atheist, I grab a cup of coffee, and I read through the Gospels, and I believe again. <laughs> it makes sense, Heather, when you get in that place, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Second thing, how do I hook up to the power? Second way is Jesus gives us a very specific promise that power is going to come to us. Look at verse 3. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things. Many scholars see this phrase, his divine power has, it's a personal possession. They believe this is direct correlation to the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave. He was the promise that has been given. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. He's the spirit of truth that's going to dwell with you. This promise by Jesus is specific. God, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in you and me, and he's real. And he daily guides, leads, teaches, directs, empowers, and strengthens. So when Jesus says in John 4, 14, and 15, there's a source of living water bubbling inside of you, it's the Holy Spirit. So how does the Holy Spirit operate in my life personally? I'll, I'll tell you practically. Here's how... Here's how the Holy Spirit works in my life. I find the Holy Spirit forms real convictions in my heart which help me to see His will and His person clearly. And then He empowers me to want to live it. So for instance, the best phrase I can come up with is how the Holy Spirit works is from this tract that was written in the 1900s. And it says this, Others may, Chris, but you cannot. And there are situations when I can tell the Spirit is saying that. It's like a hot coal on your heart. Chris, others may be able to go get drunk, but you cannot, and you know it. Chris, others may be able to look at this rotten picture of this show, but you cannot. You can't. And, and you feel it hot on your soul. It's the idea that God is so jealous for you and your purity that he will not let you do something. You just know it. There's... In the Bible, it's called a trespass. It's a line that he says, don't go past, and you just know you can't. Have you ever been on like a huge tower? I was on, I was on um, the Empire State Building. It had this, this uh, fence, and it went pretty high, and I, it was a really weird moment in my life. I said, I could easily climb that to the other side and jump. Did you ever feel that moment when you're like, I, Teresa, I know I'm weird. You're saying, you're weird. I know. But I, I kind of feel like that with the Holy Spirit saying, you can't do that. When you, when you want to do that, don't do that. It's going to kill you. The Holy Spirit is so loud. It's incredible. But the other way the Holy Spirit works is when he gives you the courage to step out and do something in faith. You're, you're scared to do it, but he's like, just do it. Nobody else will do it. Just do it. And he impresses his truth and wisdom upon your heart. And it causes you to want to because you'll know you'll please the Father. 
Like I hear when Doug gets up here and he says, we need a person in nursery. And normally broadcasting up here, you know, it does nothing usually. Because everybody in there says, oh, somebody else will do that. When the Spirit's alive in your heart, you'll hear something like nursery. I could do that, but I don't want to do that. But you'd be good at it, but I don't want to do it. But you'd really be a help. Okay, okay. All right, I'll do it. And you step out, and God fills you, and it's incredible power. The third uh, way, and this is really important, is verse 4. He's granted to us his very, his precious and very great promises. His great promises. That's plural. What are those? These are commands, principles, warnings, and benefit revealed in his inspired word. He's given to this word to us like an invitation to enter into a relationship with him. John 14, 23, Jesus says it like this. And it really, these are the Father's wills revealed. It's, Father, it's the Father inviting you to know Him. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my commands. And my Father will come and live with him. Wow. One scholar explained the Word of God like this. This is fascinating. The Bible does not just contain divinely revealed knowledge about God. He, this, this is divinely revealed knowledge. We get to know what God's like. But it also is a real relational knowledge he's offering for us as we obey it. So he's saying, this is what I'm like, but you want to know me? Obey it. Like, really know me? Experiential knowledge. So when I obey his word, based on faith, God meets with me. I'll show you how this practically is done. Let me turn to a verse I've gone to over a hundred times. In my life. Go to Hebrews. I've probably been to this verse more than a hundred times. But I want to show you practically how this, how the scriptures have worked in my life. Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 5 and 6. And if we were honest, we all live here. Listen to what it says. Verse 5. Keep your life. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can have confidence and say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Oh, I can't tell you what this verse has done for me. But it's a heart. I'll show you how it works. He says, don't live like this anymore. But we all live here. Keep your life free from love of money. But I love money. And it says, be content with what you have. I am not content. My heart, my flesh, loves money and it is not content. But God commands it and he says, stop it. Stop loving it and be content. And so a crisis comes in here. Here's the crisis. I know my heart loves it. I know I'm not content. But God wants me to be content and stop loving it. So either I believe him and trust that he knows what he's talking about here, or he doesn't. So when he says, keep your life free, love of money, I have to come and say, this isn't, come on. But here's what belief is. And this is the best statement I can think of. Belief, belief allows God's voice to be louder than mine. Have more weight than mine. 
Because my voice, my voice in the flesh says, but I love money. God, I don't, I'm not content. He says, but don't. All right, God, all right. So do I think the writer here is nuts or does he know what he's talking about? Belief says, all right, I believe it. And so the first step when you really, is you believe. And then you trust. I trust, I say, okay, Father, I'll stop worrying and I will stop striving for it and I will be content. I'll trust you. And then I step out. Letting go of my desire and I wait for him to show up. And guess what? The end of verse 5, he shows up because I will never leave you nor forsake you. His presence becomes real. He bestows his presence when I trust in his word and I do what it says. It's incredible. But until I do, I really don't know him. But when you know him and he shows up with you, especially when you think you're going to run out of money, he shows up. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. God has never failed me. But I have been and walked with him through some dark and lonely nights of trusting when I didn't see it. Peter is saying that his power is not just available, but the means to connect to it are accessible to all of us. Very clearly. Know Jesus. Follow the Spirit. Trust his word. No one is special. No one is elite. We all have access. And as I thought through this, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we trusted Peter with, at his word? Would there be any difference? Have, have you ever seen those pictures from outer space where it shows dark, you know, darkness and it shows the cities that have power and you can see the outline like this, kind of. See the outline of a country or city. I wonder, does God have special light vision concerning his saints? I wonder, can he tell which ones are brighter and bring more light to the dark world? I wonder, is the world dark because those who are supposed to be light of the world are not hooked up and not connected to the power that is available? I mean, we can complain all we want about how horrible the world's come. Are we light? I wonder, is Kent City a brighter town because we're here? Or are we just playing religious games in the dark? I wonder. 